This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yes. Carlson. Yes. Welcome everybody to another summer Carlson. series episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me as always, Brian Com. Say hello, Brian. Hey, Elon. Hey, everybody. Pleasure to be here. And I've sort of arranged this really makeshift setup. I'm in a new apartment right now, and this is definitely like the weirdest recording setup since Tokyo. So I hope it all sounds good to you. Well, it's the content that people care about, Brian. So as long as you have time to prepare, which I know you always do, I'm sure you're going to be able to drop some nuggets of knowledge here in this summer episode. It's weird, right? We're talking about fantasy hockey, even though, you know, there's no fantasy hockey going on. The playoffs are still going on. But, you know, we want to prepare. We are the nerds who are already thinking about next year's pool. We've got a big list of players we want to talk about today, of players who had seasons that we did not expect, and we want to know if they'll be able to repeat it. Before we get into them, of course, let's mention we are presented by DailyFaceOff.com. Even during the playoffs, that site is up if you want to keep up to date on player news and starting goalies and things like that. But also, you'll definitely want to keep your eye on Daily Faceoff as the season approaches. They're probably going to have another draft guide. Of course, we'll give you all the details about that as the season approaches. And Brian, one other thing before we start, what's the status of our playoff pool right now? Have I uh, caught up to you yet? Well, you're within six spots of me and you're about seven points back, but none of that matters because I am 42nd and you are 48th. This is a terrible embarrassment. Right now, leading the pack and still with plenty of players remaining for all of their teams, we've got first place Carl Sonification, second place Moons Over My Hammond, and third place, Danish Dynamite. Brian, I wonder if the reason why we're so far down is maybe we overthought this playoff pool. Because if you look at the playoff points leaders, it's all like obvious players that we all should have known to take, right? Corey Perry, Patrick Kane, Ryan Getzlaff, Jonathan Taves, Zach Parisi. You know, these are the guys at the top there. One guy, though, who is third in playoff scoring with 12 points in 12 games is Tyler Johnson. And he's the player I wanted to start this week's episode by talking about. So perfect segue by me. Thank you very much. And yeah, Tyler Johnson, you know, he's still young, but we could take a look at his career numbers so far. He played 14 games a couple seasons ago and got six points. So whatever, it just started. Then last season, he had a great rookie year, 50 points in 82 games. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's great. That's something to build upon. Maybe the following year, he'll be able to get 55, maybe 60. But no, he ended the season with 72 points in 77 games. And like I said, he already has 12 points in 12 games in the playoffs. And that makes it really hard to know what should we expect from Tyler Johnson next year. Like, is he still climbing? 
Is he going to be a point-per-game player next year, or is he like a 70-point guy, which I think would be also amazing, or should we expect him to dip a little bit? I really want to know where these 72 points in 77 games came from, and if you think that's sustainable moving forward. Well, Tyler Johnson is not your typical sophomore NHLer. He's turning 25 this summer, and it took him a while to get to the big show, likely because of his size, and there have been some great articles written about him and his journey to the NHL as the playoffs started approaching. But Tyler Johnson, the key thing that you need to know about him from this past season is he is your 2014-15 5-on-5 points per 60 champion. He led all regular NHLers in points scored relative to minutes played, And Elon, in all situations, he ranked third in the league behind only another Tyler Sagan and a guy named Sidney Crosby. So why should we care about even strength points per 60, though? We've had this conversation a lot. What does it mean for a player's actual ability? Well, let me answer my own question with a list of the last five season's leaders in this category. Ryan Getzlaff, Evgeny Malkin, Marty St. Louis, and Daniel Sedin twice. So this isn't really something you can luck your way into. The top five in even strength points per 60 from each season are littered with the sorts of names you'd expect to be gone by the end of the first round of your fantasy drafts. Man, it sounds like you're saying he had an amazing season and you can't even put too much of that onto luck or not luck, but, you know, like having great situations like getting a lot of power play time or things like that. If you're saying he was the top in points per 60, that also means that if you expect his minutes to go up, maybe his points would go up even more. And he averaged 17 minutes a game last season, which is decent. But, you know, maybe as he matures into a veteran NHLer, maybe his time could even go up. So, oh man, what does this mean for the point projection for Tyler Johnson next season? Well, it means good things for the point projection next season. And this season wasn't a terrible surprise. I mean, maybe the volume, the actual amount of points he scored was surprising. But the fact that he was able to be productive... Not so much. It's not like he came out of nowhere. He notched 24 goals and 50 points in 2013-14 as a rookie. And we were watching him, Palat, and Kucherov closely all season long. That trio topped all Lightning players in on-ice shooting percentage, each finishing with PDOs around 103-104. And you know this really isn't a list that you want to be at the top of. It means that perhaps you're seeing a little more luck than you should be. So, looking at their on-ice shooting percentages... Are these guys all just really efficient shooters who happen to be playing together? Well, if you look at Johnson and Kucherov, they were both particularly efficient this year. They both finished with between a 13-14% success rate in all situations. Can they continue being that efficient? With a 400-shot sample for Johnson and a 300-shot sample for Kucherov, I've got a bit more confidence in the former, Johnson, than the latter in terms of whether they can repeat this sort of shooting effectiveness. Another couple hundred shots from each of those two, so say one more NHL season, that should help give us a better answer. So it sounds like you're saying that you think that their shooting percentages were a bit higher than you'd expect from an average NHLer, but at the same time, there are some players who are able to maintain shooting percentages like that, but these guys are so young that their 300 or 400 shots they've taken so far in their career, it's not a big enough sample size to know where they are. So you could say, on average, you'd expect them to go down in their shooting percentages, but of course it's possible that they could maintain it. Yeah, exactly. And with every shot they take, they add to their career sample, which means we can have a little more confidence 
that what their shooting percentage looks like today is what it's going to look like one or two or three or four years from now. There's actually this really great visualization over at HockeyVisualize.com. And I'll see if we can tweet out a link later today or after the show is released with this visualization. But it shows the progressive stabilization of shooting percentage. So essentially what this means is as the number of shots goes up in your career, the less variance there will be in your career number. So a player who has a 14% shooting percentage after 100 shots is a lot less likely to maintain that than a player who has a 14% shooting percentage after 500 shots. And the number that we look to to see things really kind of stabilize is you can sort of start feeling good about it around the 400, 500, 600 shot mark. And then beyond that, uh, you're really looking at a much bigger number, like say 1,200 shots on goal. Yeah, and I guess I'll give an example here. Like, you don't want to get too excited about a 13% from, say, a Tyler Johnson or Kucherov. Like you were saying, like, take a look at Nathan McKinnon last year. He was shooting at 10%, and, you know, people might have thought, oh, there you go, 10%. But, you know, it wasn't a big sample size. He only took 241 shots. And then last season, as we all saw, his goals went way down, and a lot of it was because he only shot 7.3%. So a big dip. Hopefully that won't come from Johnson and Kucherov. But you know what? Even if Tyler Johnson's shooting percentage were to go down a bit, it's not like he's a 40-goal scorer, right? He scored 29 goals, which is great, but 43 assists. I guess let's get down to it now, Brian. If you had to make a projection for next year, he was 50 the season before, 72 this year. Where do you think he lands next year? Well, with the company that Johnson keeps, both with his line mates in Tampa as well as on the NHL leaderboard for 5-on-5 points per 60 minutes... I feel pretty good about his chances to beat out any flash-in-the-pan projections. I think you can feel safe, really safe, hoping for 60 points from him next year. It would be really nice to see him hit 70 again. But once more, that will depend on whether or not he and Kucherov can keep up their shooting percentages over another NHL season. And just to be clear, I think that Johnson has a fair shot at doing that. He wasn't just 14% last season, Elon. He's been 14% over 400 shots. So one more NHL season will give him another 200 shots. He has a really decent chance of being able to manage at least an above average shooting percentage. Right now, the average for all NHL forwards in 2014-15 regular season was just a smidge over 10%. I'm really excited, Brian, to start talking about draft lists and tiers for next year. Like, it's so hard to predict. Like, we talked about last week with guys like Hoodler. Like, how high are we drafting Yuri Hoodler and Tyler Johnson next year? Like, it seems so weird, especially after, you know, going to this season. They weren't such highly drafted players. And now are these going to be guys that are picked in the first two rounds? It's going to be really fun. But okay, if you think he's good for 60, that would at least put him in the top three or four rounds and then people can potentially go for 70 and who knows maybe he could keep going higher Tampa Bay is an awesome team like you said and his line was amazing and there's no reason to think that they won't continue to be as they get older but okay let's move on to the next player we want to talk about today a similar player to Tyler Johnson in that he had his sophomore season last year and had a big improvement over his first one though he was actually pretty good at the start Jaden Schwartz He didn't quite hit Tyler Johnson's 72 points, but he had a very respectable 63 points in only 75 games. That would be around a 69-point pace if he played a full season. So another guy that went from being a 50-point guy, he actually had 56 points the season before for St. Louis. He played 45 games the season before that and had only 13 points, so now a huge jump up. A new player that's potentially around the 70-point mark to think about when drafting next year. Brian, what are your thoughts on Jaden Schwartz? Is it the same as Tyler Johnson, or do you think that he 
is less or more of a threat to repeat? No, I think the short answer is that he does seem pretty likely to continue improving and doing well in the NHL because I looked at his numbers several ways and the one conclusion I've really come to is why why wouldn't he repeat what he's done this year or improve on it? Because he improved upon both his goals and assist totals from his sophomore season in 2013-14 and I'm quite convinced that his two consecutive 25 goal plus seasons have not been flukes. He finished the year sitting pretty pretty with an even strength points per 60 rate that ranked him in the top 25 league-wide. And on the team level, he scored as many or more even strength points than anyone in St. Louis, not named Tarasenko. The STL line, or at least the S and the T of that line, is only going to see their role increase as the first line incumbents Bacchus and Steen set off into their 30s. That STL line sees more offensive zone starts than any other line in St. Louis right now. And the defensive acumen of their first and third lines, led by Bacchus and Stasny, will hopefully allow it to stay that way. One thing, though, to watch in the offseason will be the coach. The Blues lines have been so consistent under Ken Hitchcock, and the rest of the team's commitment to defense has allowed Schwartz and Tarasenko to be let loose rather easily. If their first-round playoff exit does spurn offseason coaching change, that could turn some of that on its head though it's really hard to think of a configuration with a new coach or with a new situation, even with Hitchcock still behind the bench, where Schwartz wouldn't be able to excel. Okay, and so Brian, you know it's coming. It's my job here. I'm sorry. I'm just asking what the listeners want me to ask. Who would you draft higher, Schwartz or Tyler Johnson? It's interesting because like their lines are sort of similar. They're both young and exciting. And I think that's the tiebreaker that I would go to because they do seem pretty close in what they're capable of doing. They're both wingers on the small side and each of them have a rock on their line with them. Schwartz has Tarasenko. Johnson has Palat. The X factor could be who's going to be better next year, Latera or Kucherov. I would lean towards Kucherov being better, which would give the edge to Johnson. But even without that little analysis based on their line mates, I would still think Johnson just by a little bit because of his success in making the most of his minutes all year this year. And are you affected at all by the fact that he is a point per game player in the playoffs so far? Or do you try to just not even think about the playoffs at all? I really try and put zero weight into what players do in the playoffs when I'm thinking of where to draft players next season. It could creep in as a bias, you know, around draft time. I think it probably happened with a lot of Kings players coming into this season. But no, I don't really count what Johnson is doing as being all that important in projecting him for next season. And keep in mind, he leads all playoff players in goals scored, but he's had like two to four extra games to get those goals. But hey, at the least, you could add 40 shots if you wanted to, to those numbers that you were mentioning before. And he's had a 27.6% shooting percentage so far in the playoffs. So obviously, he's never going to be able to do something like that for a long period of time. But just goes to show this guy is good at shooting, clearly. And here's another small sample that expresses that. Okay, so we've talked about two young players just starting their careers, and we're wondering where they're going to end up. Are they going to be 70-point guys for the rest of their careers? Seems like probably yes. Let's go to the other side of the spectrum. Let's talk about a couple of players who are near the ends of their careers, but put up career numbers, or at least for this first guy, great numbers at the end of the year. We have to talk about Brian Gionta, because he was probably the MVP for a lot of fantasy players this year who picked him up 
near the end, maybe because they heard us talk about him on Keeping Carlson. And then he went on to get, I don't know, it was like a point per game or something. I know, Brian, you've got the numbers. But Brian Gionta was all over the stats sheet at the end of the season on the Buffalo Sabres. The Buffalo Sabres! And they had this guy doing so well. If you look at his career numbers, he's got 520 points in 845 games. So over a half point per game player for his career. He was really awesome. Like, I even forgot about this. But in 05-06, he scored 48 goals and had 89 points in 82 games for New Jersey. But that's 10 years ago. That's forever ago. This season... Like I said, not the most amazing season overall, 35 points in 69 games, but so strong down the stretch. And Brian, is that a sign that he's going to be able to continue that going into next season? Or was it more of a blip that should be ignored? I think we can start answering that question by asking why was he a free agent available to be picked up in the first place? At the end of the year, when everyone grabbed him, he got 19 points in his last 21 games played down the stretch. Like you said, Elon Huge MVP for anybody who grabbed him in their fantasy playoff run. But in the first 34 games played of the year, he had just 11 points. He was 35 years old. So does he deserve to be a free agent at the end of your draft again this year? Yep, he does, because he's going to turn 36 in the middle of this next season, and he hasn't been anything more than a half a point per game guy over each of the last five years. This is not a young player taking the next step. It's a vet who had one likely final hurrah. So why do I feel so confident about this, and what powered that wild run at the end of the year that's suddenly going to disappear at the start of next Well, first off, when the Sabres emptied their cupboard of warm-bodied NHL forwards at the trade deadline, Gionta was the beneficiary. He was bumped up to the first unit on the power play and saw a very nice increase in power play time. Credit to him, he made the most of that promotion, picking up eight power play points over the rest of the season. For context, though, he had just one power play point in the 48 games prior, and that was with second unit time. Another reason his production jumped and it's tied to his power play time is that for the first time since the 2010-11 season, he was averaging in that little run at the end of the season at least three shots a game. So why can't that happen again this season? Well, if Gianta couldn't get meaningful power play time and production at the start of the year with the 2014-15 Sabres, his odds are even longer with the 2015-16 Sabres team. That will, in all likelihood, have added Evander Kane and Jack Eichel to its depth chart. Adding to that, there's a chance that last year's second overall pick Sam Reinhart makes the roster, and the Sabres have their own in-house emerging forward in Johan Larson. Put it all together, and it's hard to see Gionta in a role next season that's going to allow him to get as many power play minutes or as many shots on goal as he did down the stretch this year. Okay, so a pretty definitive do not draft. It'll be interesting to see if other people in your pools draft him. And I guess if he remains undrafted, I would still keep an eye on him. Just, you know, watch Daily Faceoff because you mentioned all these players who will be ahead of him on the depth chart. And that's your reason why you don't think he's going to get the same opportunities. But what if he ends up on a line with like an Evander Kane and a Jack Eichel? All of a sudden, then he becomes more valuable. But who knows where things will shake out in Buffalo? I'm curious to see where he'll play and if he'll be able to have any meaningful impact like he did at the end of last season. But I agree with you, Brian. I wouldn't risk it on a draft pick. Unless it was maybe the last pick and, you know, it's a pretty deep league. Even then, I wouldn't do it. I'd really have very little faith in Gianta doing well, even if given the opportunity next year. And I'm very confident that it's going to be hard for him to get that opportunity. 
Okay, and the other player, I guess I was saying players that are older near the end of their careers, but this guy, Drew Stafford, he's 29, which is younger than me, so maybe I need to reassess how I look at these people. But I wanted to talk about Drew Stafford, another Sabre, or former Sabre in this case, and he had a very interesting year because he was doing, you know, his regular half point per game pace with Buffalo until he got traded to Winnipeg, and then he had 19 points in 26 games to end the season. That's a 60-point pace. And you know what, Drew Stafford has done things like this before when given the opportunity. Like, he did have 52 points in 62 games for Buffalo in 2010-2011, and that's probably right around the end of the time that Buffalo was a good team. Now that Drew Stafford is back on a good team, Brian, do you think he can do this 60-point pace over the full season with Winnipeg next year? Or do you think that was a bit of luck and he's going to stick with his career average? I feel like when these guys come from Buffalo, you can't look at career averages because they were such a bad team for the last few seasons. That's a very good point. It really is hard to accurately assess anybody who is moving from Buffalo to elsewhere. But one reason to be very cautious of Drew Stafford in Winnipeg is that he was taking about the same amount of shots per game there as he was in Buffalo. He just happened to be scoring at like twice the rate almost. So I'm not totally certain that he's going to keep up the 60-point pace he was on. The last time he did have a 60-point pace was back in 2010-11 when the Sabres were still a talented and competitive team occasionally or, or petering out of that little era for them. The Jets could be a good landing spot for him, but we talked all season about how they had like this top six and there were one or two guys on the outside looking in and Stafford finished the season in the top six with Little, Wheeler, Ladd, Shifley, and Froelich. But keep in mind that Mathieu Perrault is going to have to get in there somehow. So I figure it'll be Froelich or Stafford or a bit of both who see their minutes and opportunities decreased at the start of next season. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, when we're talking about Drew Stafford, it's all about context, right? Because you could see people looking at him as a sleeper for next season, since he only ended the season with 43 points overall. So if you're drafting with people who are looking at last year's stats, or even the past couple of years' stats, they're probably not going to be drafting him, and you might be able to get him very late in your pool. But of course, if you're drafting with people who are looking at how he did in Winnipeg and expecting him to get 60 points, maybe then he's not a sleeper. Maybe he's like, you know, overrated. But I feel like I'd be pretty confident in him being able to hit, say, 50 points. I think he'll be able to be more than half a point per game, assuming he's in that top six in Winnipeg. So that's my opinion about him. Don't go crazy. Maybe don't expect 60 points, but I could see 55 and, you know, then it kind of depends on what goes on with Winnipeg. It'll be nice for their lineup to settle. Hopefully they could have a season without so many injuries so they could actually get into a groove and we could see where he slots in. Elon, can I ask you a question? Hit me. Did Drew Stafford help your fantasy team this season? I would say yes, right? Like, we picked him up after he got traded to Winnipeg in our joint pool, and he had a few really great games. Like, obviously, we didn't win in the end, so it kind of depends what your metric is, but he did really well when he went to Winnipeg. Right, so I think you just might be a little biased about seeing exactly what he did for your team in a short amount of time and now thinking of really big things for him next year. I think 55 points is a stretch. 60 points would be a huge stretch. Elon, his career high is 52 points, although he did do it in 62 games played, so he probably would have passed that over a full 82-game stretch. I feel like he's after-draft free agent fodder, like maybe one of the guys you have on your watch list ready to add for the first guy that you draft that gets injured or really disappoints you or finds himself in a bad situation. I can't even see myself grabbing him at the end of like a middling deep draft. Wow. Okay. So this will be a fun thing to watch then because I very strongly disagree. I think he's 
going to get 50 points next year, at least, which makes him draftable in most leagues. I think the over-under between you and I is 50 points. I think I think definitely below, and you think pretty likely above. Well, I guess the reason that we're different is you love looking at you know, the numbers and you're not getting too biased about like something that happened recently. But I just am locked on this fact that he was with Buffalo all that time. I want to see, you know, he went to Winnipeg. I thought to myself, oh, now that he's on a good team, I'll bet you he could do better. And he did. Of course, it was a small sample size. We'll see next year. But sure, I'd say over under 50. I'd gladly take that bet with you and put the knowingest or Carl Smartest on the line, depending on who has it at that point. But that could be another thing on the list. Drew Stafford's going to get over 50 points, in my opinion, assuming he plays a full season. If you make it 50.5, then I will take the under for sure. One thing that we can definitely agree on is his plus minus will likely improve. Yeah, that's for sure. And okay, I'll take that bet, but only if we look at projected points, assuming he plays a full season. So we'll divide his uh, points by his games and then multiply by 82. I don't know about this math stuff, but okay. (laughs) Okay, let's move on from talking about forwards. We still have a few more players we want to talk about today. We have a goalie and then some defensemen. So let's go to the goalie, Devin Dubnik. Oh, man. Okay, how do you project a guy like this? Like, his career has been so up and down. We've talked about him so much on the podcast, so I don't want to, you know, go crazy talking about Devin Dubnik again. But I'm sure some people are wondering, is he a keeper for next season? Is he going to be a top 10 goalie? Like, he was one of the top fantasy goalies to own for the second half of the season. I think that's pretty much undeniable. He was a rock, won almost every game, had an amazing save percentage, goals against average, everything. His team is good. They just got eliminated in the playoffs, but they're obviously a very strong team. On the other hand, it's Devin Dubnik, and last year going to the draft, I'm sure he went undrafted, and I remember we talked about him when he was the backup on Arizona midway through the season, saying, guys, maybe you should start paying attention to Devin Dubnik. That's how much in obscurity he had become. Brian, where do you see him landing next year? And where should people draft him? Ah, just everything. Is he a keeper? I don't know. Okay, Lana, I want you to think for a second. Over the last, like, six, seven years, what is one Edmonton Oiler goalie who has left Edmonton and found success. I guess you're saying aside from Devin Dubnik? You kind of just short-circuited the question, but yes, fine, aside from Devin Dubnik. Um, how about I'm going to go with Curtis Joseph? <laughs> that, was, that was a little <laughs> longer back than I was expecting us to go, but like, it really is kind of crazy. You have to go that far back. If you look at the last seven years, you've got Devin Dubnik as their games played leader, followed by Nikolai Habibulin, Dwayne Rolison. And then we're already at Ben Scrivens, who feels like he just got there. Although I think he personally feels like he's been there forever. So what's your point here? You're saying that Dubnik is cursed with his time on the Oilers and he's not going to be able to be successful? No, I'm saying exactly the opposite, that he has been able to leave the Oilers and it took a while, but he got back. He's back in the NHL. He's back as a starting goalie. And he's doing what I think most people thought he was capable of doing, before being cast aside from the Oilers at the start of that disastrous 2013-14 season. Up until that point, it seemed like he was an at least average NHL goalie on a woefully inept defensive team. And we still have those questions now about who's left there. Ben Scrivens, Victor Fast. I mean, maybe we can project them to be a little bit below average NHL goalies. But I think we can agree that everybody there has suffered because of the just awful defensive team that the Oilers have been icing for what seems like forever. So I'm not going to judge Dubnik on that like 2013-14 meltdown, because before that, 
and I think I've gone through this story several times on the show before, I drafted him at the start of that season to be my keeper goalie. I thought the Oilers were going to turn everything around. They had Hall, Nugent Hopkins, Eberle. They had a couple decent guys on defense, like Jeff Petrie. And from looking at Dubnik's even-strength save percentage numbers, I had confidence that of the available goalies, and keep in mind, like, the top 10 or 12 were already gone as keepers, he would have been a good one. And I still think that today. I think going forward into next season with Minnesota, a team who's had their own share of ups and downs, and we saw that and talked about it a lot this year, I think he's going to try to be a stabilizing force back there for Minnesota. And if Minnesota can get their act together as a team on a reasonably consistent basis over the course of a season, then I think he will be a fine player to have on your roster next year. I would definitely take him over Mike Smith. Okay, well, I don't know how much praise you're giving him by saying you take him over Mike Smith, though he did have a pretty good end to the season in his own right. But, I mean, the real question is, would you rather have him over, like, some of these more established goalies that you'd always draft ahead of him beforehand, right? Like, I mean, just to recap, during his time in Minnesota, he played 39 games, and he had a 936 save percentage, 27 wins, 5 shutouts. I think the real question is, do you want to have, like, a Devin Dubnik over... I don't even know. Tuka Rask, that's maybe too crazy. But you know, is he like a top five guy? That is too crazy. I mean, he's not going to repeat exactly what he's done over the last 40 games for Minnesota. That's not going to sustain over a whole season. But you can expect if you draft Evan Dubnik to have at minimum an average level NHL goalie. So say like a 915, 917 save percentage for sure. And then it'd be a really nice bonus if he could creep up into the low 920s, which I think he's capable of, again, if Minnesota has their act together in front of him. Okay, so at the very least, we could say that he would be a solid number one goalie on your fantasy team, right? And after that, you know, goalies are hard to predict. That could even fall apart too, but I feel like at this point, I'd be happy to have him as my number one goalie. Do you agree? Absolutely, 100%, and that adds to his value. There's no challenger to the throne in Minnesota. He walked in there, and he just grabbed it because Kemper has not proven himself to be an NHL goalie. Backstrom is on the wrong side of father time, and I guess their next guy is John Curry. I I think he's still in the system, and I'm not sure how close he is to being ready, if ever. So right now, Devin Dubnik is the guy in Minnesota, and in an age of so many tandems where you have to try and figure out who's going to be 1A, 1B, and take risks in your draft on the guy that you hope is going to take the lead of a goalie tandem, Devin Dubnik stands alone in the Minnesota crease, and that is valuable. Right. Okay, so here, one quick one. Just a one-word answer, and then we'll move on. If you had to pick between Dubnik and Corey Crawford, who would you pick? Has Crawford been traded to Edmonton yet? (laughs) No, assuming that everything stays the same on Chicago. I'll stick with Crawford. Oh, yeah? Oh, man. Okay, interesting. Oh, I... I'm nervous about what's going on with the backups on Chicago. But, of course, we'll have to see in the summer what actually happens with Chicago. I don't want to open that can of worms. That'll be a future podcast. Let's move on to some defensemen, though actually I was looking at Curtis Joseph's numbers uh, after I mentioned him. You know that he ended his career with a 906 save percentage? Like, I recall as a kid, he was one of the best goalies in the world, and it's not even such a strong save percentage, so I guess the NHL was different back then. Oh yeah, different era. Ed Belfour's is probably lower than you remember, too. Man, I wish I could go back in time and play fantasy hockey. 
Not because, like, I know the results, but just, like, it seems like it would have been fun to play with all of these star players. I wish I could go back in time and play goalie. I feel like I could be better than 906. Okay, I'm sure. Okay, so let's talk about some defensemen to close out the show. There were a lot of defensemen that emerged this season. Like, or did they? That's the question for this show. Did they just have amazing years and they're going to go back to how they were before? Or did they emerge and they're now among the league's elite fantasy defensemen? Let's start with a guy we did talk about quite a bit, but definitely worth mentioning, Roman Yosi. We talked about him all year for being such a fantasy stud. He was giving points, he was giving blocks, but at the end of the year, now that we could look back, he had 55 points in 81 games. The year before, he had 40 points, and I remember thinking, oh, he probably won't be able to sustain that, 40 points in 72 games, but he eclipsed that points per game. Brian, is he just going to keep going up or is he going to stay at 55 points or was that too crazy and should we expect more of a 40 to 45 point defenseman out of Roman Yosi? I don't know what's more amazing about Roman Yosi, the fact that he had a 55 point season this year or the fact that so few people are talking about it. Do you know that Shea Weber's career high is 56 points and he just got that recently, two years ago in 2013-14. So Shea Weber himself, although on a much more defensively inclined Nashville team, peaked at 53 points, and well, I guess I said peaked, but he's done better since, but if we're looking beyond today, I think Shea Weber's production is only going to get more and more precarious. His underlying numbers have been taking a bit of a dive over the last couple seasons, and with Yosi's emergence, you have to wonder when that's really going to start expressing itself on the score sheet as well, and we don't have to wait very long for Yosi to start making noise on the score sheet, though he did it this year, again with a very offensively talented Predators team. But we've been tuning his horn for a couple years on the show now, and even before we had the show, I liked Roman Yosi because he blocked a lot of shots and put up a few points along the way. Now he's turning into like kind of the full package. If you're a fan of Nicholas Cronwall in fantasy hockey, then you might also be a fan of Roman Yosi in the next few years if you're just starting now. For next year, I feel like 45, 50 points is a pretty much sure thing. Like you can count on that from him and hopefully more. I wouldn't really count on him to be 55. I'd still go with guys who have done it two or three times. But I do think that this is probably the last year that you can snap up Roman Yosi any later than he should be snapped up. But again, that would take a certain amount of luck and lack of awareness from the other people in your pool. Yeah, well, at this point, so you mentioned Shea Weber. He only had 45 points last year. Well, well, only, you know, it's a good season, especially for a defenseman. But Yosi had 55 points. Would you say this is it? Like, there's not going to be any more seasons while they're together that Weber's going to have more points than Yosi? I would, actually. There have been several cases made about Shea Weber's declining ability as a defenseman, and I feel, like I said, like his production is going to follow sooner rather than later. In the meantime, Yosi is heading in the other direction. In fact, Yosi is responsible for a lot of Shea Weber's success this year. So don't look at it the other way around and draft Weber before Yosi. If you think your league values Weber before Yosi, just don't be the guy who drafts Weber and then take Yosi when you're able to. Okay, and then if we think that Yosi's 55 points were impressive, then how can we not mention Dennis Weidman's 56 points? How did that happen? Dennis Weidman. 
So in 80 games, he had 56 points. That's his career high. The guy's 32 years old, and he had this amazing breakout season. We already talked about the Flames last week when we talked about Hoodler and some of the other guys there, but you can't ignore the success that Dennis Weidman had. And earlier in the year, obviously, before he got injured, we were talking about Giordano having broken out and showing himself to become an elite fantasy defenseman. But then when he went down, Dennis Weidman completely stood up and took over the offense from the back end on Calgary. Brian, do you think this is something that can be sustainable? Can Dennis Weidman even get 50 points next season? Or would that be crazy to expect that? So I admit that Dennis Weidman has been a player under my own radar for a very long time. Like, he started his career not in the greatest way, played a couple seasons in St. Louis and then a couple in Boston, seemingly as a depth defenseman. He did have 50 points for Boston in 08-09. Right, I was just about to say that, but then he went back to 30 the next year. But then he moved to Florida in 2010-11. He split time between Florida and Washington And since then, he's been about a half a point per game defenseman. What has made that a little harder to recognize is that two of those years, he only played 46 games. So we didn't see it over a full season, and his point totals did not really rocket him up the year-end leaderboards. But with this year's 56 points, how can I help but not be at least a little bit of a believer? I guess Weidman is going to be a 40-point player. Elon, how do you feel about that 40-point projection? Well, I mean, of course, that's a drop-off from this year, but to me, that actually seems pretty reasonable because that's pretty much in line with his career numbers. Of course, Giordano won't be injured next year, hopefully, and I imagine that would hinder Weidman's ability to get so many points. But at the same time, 40 points is still pretty good, and I think if you're saying that, that's pretty good for Dennis Weidman, 32-year-old, second-pairing defenseman on Calgary. The thing with him, I've owned him before, and I remember being very frustrated because there were stretches where he was getting not that many minutes. It didn't seem like the coach was relying on him. But then this year, especially after Giordano went down, Weidman was the the stud that we've mentioned. So I think 40 points is a nice conservative and, and fair projection. I'm surprised. I thought you would say that it was way too low and why can't he get 45 or 50? Maybe you think that would be more along the lines of your projection. You did call mine conservative and that's fair. But a couple things concern me about Dennis Weidman. First, He's never done this before. He had a few good seasons, but he's doing it the first time at 32 years old. And something that coincided with his production this year was the outstanding success of three players named Godreau, Monaghan, and Hoodler, as well as the whole Calgary Flames team that had defied expectations, had outplayed all their underlying numbers all season long, And they show up in Weidman's numbers too. If you look at his shooting percentage, it's about 2.5% higher than his career average. And that is a pretty decent sized jump for a defenseman. Bigger than I'm comfortable with. His on-ice shooting percentage last year, thanks to that trio, that super hot line, was also the second highest in his entire career. Of course, the last time it was that high was that 50-point season in Boston, Elon, that you mentioned earlier. So there are a few reasons to be nervous about Dennis Weidman's production and be nervous that you might think of him a little more highly than you should be. Like you said, Elon, he's a second pairing guy. He plays with Chris Russell. Mark Giordano is going to be back next year with TJ Brody leading the charge on the Flames blue line. That is why I think that Weidman is a safer bet around 40 points than he is around 50. All right, and let's end the show kind of where we started it, right? We talked about... 
Schwartz and Tyler Johnson as two emerging stars into the league who in their second major season really made waves, which was last year. I want to talk about a defenseman who I think is in a similar category, Justin Falk over on Carolina. He did play in 2011-2012, but he wasn't an impact player. Last season was when he really came out in 2013-2014. He had 32 points in 76 games. Then this season, this past season, 2014-15, He really broke out 49 points in 82 games. All the more impressive that it happened on Carolina, not a team that was known to score very often. You know, you talk about Roman Yosey with his 55 points, but he was on such an offensively talented team. Falk got almost as many points on Carolina. So I'm very curious to know if you think that Falk will be now a 50-plus point defenseman for the remainder of his career, even on this bad team. Or do you think this was a bit of a lucky season? What do the underlying numbers say about his 49 points this year? Not since Marshall in the mid-90s NFL have I been so excited about an athlete named Falk. (laughs) Well done. Do you remember Marshall Falk? Yeah, big deal. I remember playing Madden 95 or something, and they had signs when you played in Indianapolis saying, it's all our Falk. (laughs) All right, get back on point, Brian. Elon, your point about doing what he did as a member of the Carolina Hurricanes is well taken. He had 49 points on the fourth lowest scoring team in the league. The only other defenseman I can think of off the top of my head who saw a lot of point scoring success on a really low scoring team this year is Oliver Ekman Larson. And that is a good person to be related to in terms of your production. I really like what Falk did this year, and I have no reason to think that he can't do it again next year, and hopefully if Carolina improves, that'll help buoy that number a little bit. I think he's a lock, pretty much, with the role that he has on the team and with his underlying numbers, that he should be able to grab 45 points for you next year. Over the last couple of years, he's been one of the league's top point scorers from the blue line, actually. In the last two years, he's ranked 15th in total points scored and in the top 25 in even strength points per 60 minutes. And by the way, total points scored was also an even strength measure. So we're not even looking at his power play time. We're looking at what he's been able to do at even strength on a pretty woeful Hurricanes team. I like the guy. I think he's definitely emerging. And Elon, when we get into our sure shots episodes in our preseason series where we talk about which defensemen are moving up a tier and which ones are moving down, I feel like Justin Falk should definitely be mentioned as moving up. Yeah, well, considering you're saying he did so well at even strength, and that doesn't even count the 20 points he had on the power play, 20 out of 49, that's a significant percentage. So if your league counts power play points, he's even more valuable there. I'm with you, man. Justin Falk, he's amazing, but so is Roman Yosi. Who would you take between the two of them in your league? I'm assuming the answer is different depending on if blocks are counted. Yeah, well, I take Yosi for blocks, but Falk for hits and also Falk for shots on goal. I do think Yosi has a better chance at getting more points than Falk, but it could be close enough that you want to look at those peripherals to decide which one meets your needs. Ah, yes, hits. That fantasy stat that you never think about because it's kind of a weird stat, but definitely if your league counts it, that is a point for Justin Falk. I'm so excited to see how the defenseman projections are going to shake out for next season. I wonder who's going to make the top 10. There's a lot of contenders, but okay, let's end the show for this week. That was a lot of fun. 
And we're still right at the beginning of our summer series, so hopefully you're still subscribed to the podcast and you'll stick around. We're hoping to come out with a new episode again in a couple of weeks. We have a few interesting topics that we're considering covering. If you have an idea for a topic that you want us to cover over the summer, tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. We'd love to get your thoughts. We've gotten a few great suggestions already. Also, I want to take a quick moment to thank all of the patrons of Keeping Carlson. We said last week that we were making it so any patron of any amount can get full patron access, which means access to our Facebook group and to our patron casts, which we'll be scheduling our May patron cast at some point soon. Of course, the Facebook group, you may have noticed if you're a new patron, isn't as bumping as it was during the fantasy season. But hey... If you want to uh, start asking questions like about your keepers for next year or anything like that, you know, Brian and I are happy to discuss. And, you know, we have had some fun discussions on there. But, of course, it's not as exciting when it's not fantasy season. But things will be picking up soon. And you want to be a patron because we are going to be soon announcing our patron-only fantasy pool, which is going to be epic. Like, I don't want to give too many details. We're going to do a podcast at some point in the summer where we're going to talk about designing a perfect fantasy league. And then we'll also... Uh, give more details about our league, which is still in development, but it's going to be great. So you want to be a patron of Keeping Carlson any amount of money, and you get access to everything over the summer. So it's keepingcarlson.com slash patron. And thanks again to everyone who has signed up. And with that, let's cue the outro music. And Brian, why don't you read us the credits? This episode of Keeping Carlson was presented by Daily Faceoff and supported by all of our patrons. It was researched with help from War on Ice, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Behind the Net, Hockey DB, Quant Hockey, Hockey Visualized, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Man, the list got longer than usual. Looks like he really dug deep for these players. Great job, Brian, and I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Thanks, Elon. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Sun.